Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. Okay, excellent. Um, so I'll start kind of introducing my family a little bit. That's my wife, my Cresha. Uh, she, as Jeff mentioned, could not be here today. She's uh, She's on staff here in the church, but she volunteers in the ministry staff, and then she's a full-time uh, critical care nurse in the ICU, and so she's been quite busy with coronavirus, and she's doing double shifts all weekend, so there's a possibility that when she gets home at some time this morning, she might pop her head in my office, and I might uh, call her over to say hi for a minute uh, before she tries to get some sleep. Uh, before next shift this evening. So um, uh, this picture was taken about a year ago, but that's that's our youngest son there. He's 17 now, um, and uh, he's he's doing good. In fact, uh, not too long after I get off uh, the call here with you all, I have to hop in a car and drive him over to South Dakota um because he was it's a long story he was supposed to play in a um in a national aau circuit called the adidas gauntlet and they wound up canceling that and he got a call this week from a more local team and said hey do you want to play in a tournament this weekend and he's like dad can i play in south dakota this weekend so we're uh, there's not a lot of tournaments that are going on right now so he was pretty stoked to be able to play in one so we're going to drive him over there. Uh, we have an older son as well. Uh, our, our youngest son is Elijah. He's 17, as I said, and then our older son, uh, Paviel, is 25. He, he lives here in the Twin Cities, but in his own apartment, and uh, um, so that's, that's kind of our little family there. Um, but uh, uh, Jeff was close. I'm not quite an evangelist. I'm actually a teacher in the church in the two cities here, uh, you know, I, I like to joke around with the evangelists and I say, it's okay. Not everybody can be a teacher. Some people have to be evangelists. So that's, you know, that's, that's all right. Um, but, uh, I, I've been in the full-time ministry, uh, since 2004. Um, before that, for about eight years, I was a high school history teacher and a basketball coach. Um, and so, but been in the ministry since then. And so, I kind of split my time. Uh, I, I do a lot of local ministry here in the Twin Cities. And then uh, we spend a, or we, we, I should clarify, we used to spend a lot of time in Africa. Um, we've had to cancel a couple trips this year because of coronavirus and the fact that most African countries won't let Americans in right now. Um, nobody will, will take us. And so not been able to uh, get over there, but we do a, a lot of the teaching ministry over there and, and really trying to develop um, the teaching ministry in Africa. And so just in the last year and a half, we've gone from zero teachers in Africa to now 15 on the continent of Africa in our family of churches, which is um, really, really cool and helpful over there. So 
Um, I want to talk in this first session. We're going to have two sessions today. We'll do the first session, take a little break, and then we'll get into the second one. And in this first one, I want to focus on really, uh, not exclusively, but a little more of a focus on internally within the church, some of the dynamics, um, not all of them, but some of them that can cause us conflict when we talk about uh, some of our diversity and racial issues. And I really want to zero in on the topic of culture. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm in the Midwest family of churches, um, you know, which includes, uh, gosh, Illinois and Michigan and Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Indiana. And although I, I think our whole fellowship is diverse and our churches are, are diverse, there's, there's perhaps a unique diversity in the Midwest, just a little bit, in that, um, you know, we, we have the big cities like Detroit and Chicago and Indianapolis, but then we have a number of small churches in like northern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin and places like Duluth and Eau Claire and Appleton uh, in communities that are 95, 96% white. And so we have a teen camp every year, and uh, except for this year. <laughs> and uh, when all the kids come together, it's, it's really this amazing diversity because you kids have kids from Detroit, the south side of Chicago, who might live in neighborhoods that are uh, you know, 90% black or more. And then you have kids coming from Duluth and Eau Claire and they're 95, 96% white. And now they're together in the woods for a week. And it's, it's amazing. And uh, one of the kind of common occurrences I've seen is there is a cabin uh, where we meet every year. We have about uh, three weeks of camp and about 200 kids go to each week in the Midwest. And there's one boy's cabin called Old Chapel and it houses 56 boys. Uh, which is, for all the other cabins are really small, but I, I love going down to Old Chapel. And so these kids will arrive on Sunday afternoon and they go to the, the cafeteria and they get their camp shirts and their camp books and, you know, their instructions. And they're told very clearly, go down to your cabin, find a bed, put your stuff underneath the bed, um, you know, lay out your sleeping bag, put your pillow on there and get ready for your swim test. And so that's their instructions. So They'll go down, and if you go into Old Chapel when they're all arriving, as you can imagine, 56 teen boys, there is nothing going on there other than order and them following the rules, and it's nice and quiet. And uh, I, I can see some of you smiling already because you know that's not true. It's chaos. They're running after each other. I've seen people jump off the top bunks trying to do elbow drops. I've seen them chasing one another with mattresses. They're throwing water bottles at each other. They're having a good time. And you'll have one of the campus counselors come in. So let's say a, a young white campus counselor, and he'll walk in and see this and be like, oh my goodness, this is what I've been trained for. I've got to you know, show these kids that we're going to, they got to follow the rules and they got to be disciplined and we got to be kind of tight up front. And then maybe as the week goes on, I can ease off a little bit. And so he'll walk in and he'll raise his voice and be like, guys, stop messing around. Grab your stuff. Let's go. You heard what the rules were. Get a bunk, get it under there. Move now. 
And I've noticed kind of two stereotypical responses, and, and there are always exceptions. But the kids from Eau Claire and Duluth and places like that will immediately go, oh, sorry, and they'll grab their stuff and they'll run and throw it under a bed and stand at attention and be like, okay, sorry, uh, whatever you say. But the kids maybe, you know, at least some from like Detroit or the south side of Chicago, they don't have that same response. They're like, hold up, who are you yelling at? Like, did you just come in here yelling at somebody? Like, what? And so now this counselor is like, oh man, they're disrespecting. I, I, I got to make sure because this can get out of control. So he'll raise his voice even more and be like, hey, you will not disrespect me in this cabin. This week is going to go better if you do stuff when I tell you to. When I say something, you got to move. Now grab your stuff and go. And now he thinks that's going to solve the problem. But these guys will look and be like, I don't know you like that. Who, who do you think you are coming at me? Dude, you better back up. Now we have a conflict. And the counselor's thinking, oh, I got some disrespectful, rebellious kids here. There's no other way to view this. And that conflict can continue throughout the week, right? And now it's fairly easy for maybe by Tuesday or Wednesday for those kids to start thinking, dude is always on us, man. Why is he always giving us trouble? Why is he always harassing us? And it's not too difficult by Tuesday or Wednesday for one of them to go, you know what? I know what the problem is. That dude is racist. Now, of course, if he heard that, he'd be devastated by it. No, that's not at all what was happening. So there's a conflict here that can easily start to look racial and take on some of those historic issues and, and hurts and baggage. But what really is the cause? And I think that's what's important is a lot of times when there's conflict, we, we go with what it looks like rather than what causes it. And then we can't really deal with it correctly. So let me give you an example here. I grew up, although I would not have known this growing up, but I grew up in a culture that's called an ascribed authority culture. In other words, if somebody's in charge, you respect them and they're in charge simply because they're in a position of authority. No questions asked. My dad raised us with a saying, uh, and maybe you can complete the sentence. He used to say all the time, when I say jump, you say, how, how high, right? I can read some of your lips. Except, yeah, that's not really what my dad said. My dad went to a whole nother level with that. He used to say, when I say jump, you say, when can I come down, sir? And so we were just taught absolute authority. My wife grew up in a culture that was different. It wasn't disrespectful to authority, but it approached it from a different angle. And those cultures, and they're legitimate cultures, they're called achieved authority cultures. And what you're taught in those cultures is, if you approach me with respect, I will give you respect in turn. But if you come at me with disrespect, I will come at you with disrespect. If you yell at me, I will yell at you. If you give me an attitude, I'm going to mirror what you give me. Because 
in the culture she grew up in, it didn't always go well for her people to just trust people in position of authorities. That's not always wise. That was sometimes abused. And so I'm going to wait and make you earn respect. And these are cultures that go back a long, long way. And so when we're not aware of those differences in conflict, we can think the conflict is something else when really it is these different approaches to authority. Let me give you another example. You could have two uh, brothers or two sisters, and they can even be from the same ethnic group. It's not always about ethnicity and race and those kind of things. Uh, culture has a lot of different streams. Countries have cultures, regions have cultures, churches have cultures, uh, you know, families have cultures, and we have all these streams running through us. And so you could have two people from the same ethnic group, and uh, they are suddenly placed in a discipling relationship together. One of them comes from a background culture that's direct in their communication. The other one is more indirect. You don't say things right up front because that's considered rude. You you sort of, you know, hint around to things and and you get there eventually. And so now they're in a discipling relationship. The direct speaking brother just comes right out with it because that's what you do to be respectful. I just tell you like it is. Here's the sin I see in your life. You're prideful. You need to work on this. And the other brother walks away thinking he's unloving and rude and aggressive and unkind. And I can't be in a relationship spiritually with that guy. And now they think they have a spiritual conflict when the cause of it is simply a different approach in culture. And I'm convinced that about 75% of the conflicts in our churches have at the root of them these cultural differences, which is a big deal when you're in a diverse church, because the more diverse a church is, the more cultural backgrounds you're going to have and assumptions that we're going to bring with us. Um, you can have and will have in your church. Some people come from an individualist background. Some people come from a collectivist culture mindset. And, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit last night with the leaders, but, you know, one example is I, I kind of like order. And that's, that's often a, a characteristic of somebody who is raised in an individualist culture, because you're taught to like, you be responsible for your own stuff and take care of your own stuff. And that's your stuff. And so I have phone cord. I have one attached to the side of my desk. I have one in by my bed. I have one downstairs where I like to sit. And in my mind, those are my phone cords. And, you know, my wife has her own, my sons, they have their own. You have your stuff. I have my stuff. That's just the mentality I was raised in, even though we're in the same family. My wife was raised in a collectivist culture, so she does not have those distinctions in her mind. Like everybody's is everything. It's just, we're all part of the same group and what's yours is mine. And so I'll come in, I'll be like, hey, where, where's my phone cord? And she's like, well, I needed one on the way to work. I was like, but, but that's my, my, my cord. You, you, you stole it. Like, wh why didn't you take your cord? And she's like, because I didn't know where my cord was. And there was a cord there. And I just, I just grabbed it. it it's not a big deal. I was like, it kind of is a big deal, though. It's, it sort of kind of is. Um, and we have that conflict all over the place. Like, I'll open up my wallet and be like, where's my bank card? And she's like, oh, I just needed one. I'm like, do you see how this one has my name on it? Like, there's a reason, you know, that, and you have yours. And, and so, but you bring that into the church and this collective and individualist mindset, it, it dictates 
uh, or influences how we approach politics, how we uh, see family, how we think the church should operate, like all kinds of things, uh, conflicts can be caused by this. Sometimes it can be generational. My wife, a couple months ago, sent this text to our sons, a capital letter K with a period. And they came to me and they're like, dude, what's up with mom? Why is she so furious? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? They're like, look at the text she just sent us. And they'd asked her to do something and she said K. And I was like, okay, I mean, it's a little annoying because the word is O-K-A-Y, but she just put a letter, like I get it. And they're like, no, no, no. And then they explained to me that a capital letter means you're yelling and a period means you're angry. So she's thinking she's communicating one thing. They're thinking she's communicating a whole nother thing. That's the power of culture, is we presume to be communicating one thing, but we're actually communicating something very different to somebody with a different cultural presumption. Let me give uh, one corporate example here that can really um, uh, cause hurt and issue in the church. Uh, you know, you have something that's in the news. Uh, a a deadly confrontation between a white police officer and a young person of color. And here you go, and it's all in the news. And everybody's talking about it. And, you know, people are hurting it. And even going back to the individualist and collective culture thing, um, you know, I've learned from my wife that we process things like that in the news very differently. Uh, me as an individualist, I can look at somebody, you know, who was shot over here and go, wow, that's tragic and that's unfortunate but that's over there. And her being from a collectivist background will look at a young man of color that's killed and, and really internalize it and say, that's my son, that's my brother, that's my uncle, and feel it in that way. And, and that's a very cultural characteristic where I don't feel it in that same way. So I've had to learn, you know, like, why do you care so much? Like, oh, I get it, okay, you, you really do internalize this. So now the question becomes, this thing's all in the news, everybody's talking about it. What's gonna be said on Sunday? How is the church gonna address it on Sunday? And we all come to church on Sunday and the leadership says nothing. And half the church doesn't even notice. They go away thinking, what a great service that was. Man, that was amazing. And the other half goes away hurt and in pain and feeling unloved and starts to think, man, our leaders are just racially insensitive. They don't love us. They don't know what's going on They're, you know, and it, and it can be that it could look like that. But a lot of times what's behind it is, believe it or not, culture, because white cultured churches historically, and again, the thing with culture is you don't have to talk about it. Nobody says it. It's just what you all do. It's what you all grew up with. It's what you presume. And in white culture churches, you don't talk about political issues. You don't need to. There's other places, other venues to talk about controversial things, not church, because that might cause an argument or a disagreement or something of that nature. So you don't talk about it. It's just what you, that's what church is for. In fact, you'll hear ministers sometimes go, hey, clear your mind of all the distractions and let's just focus on Jesus. But historically, black culture churches, it's very different. 
church was the one place where you could go and talk about the pain that you're facing, the injustice, the oppression. You could grieve together. You could lament. You could talk about God's justice and how, how we're going to approach this in the world and how we're going to live it out. That's what church is for. You talk about it. So you come on Sunday expecting, I've been told for years, this is my family. And now I know we're going to talk about this pain that I'm feeling and how we are going to process this. And then nothing is said. And you can imagine how hurtful that is and the thoughts that go through your mind and how you process it. And one of the dangers of culture is that we process someone else's actions based on our cultural presumptions and what it would mean if we took those actions. And that can be very uh, problematic in culture if we're not aware of the dynamic. So let me say this quickly, why talk about culture and race? Um, I feel like I used to have to convince people of why we needed to talk about this. Not so much these days. I think people want to talk about it now. Um, but, you know, you do have these responses. It's political. It's going to be divisive. Are we going to make a race issue out of what should we? Let's just get back to the gospel. Well, here are my answers to that. Number one, healthy families talk. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, don't talk about this stuff. You know, a, a marriage that has things off limits to talk about is a marriage prone to problems. If, if you're healthy, you can talk about these things. You got to learn how to do it and do it well, but we need to talk about them. It is God's plan for us to be diverse. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. God promised Abraham, I'm going to gather the nations one day through your descendants and in Galatians 3, Paul says, when God came to Abraham and told him that, he was announcing the gospel to Abraham ahead of time. So being diverse is God's plan. And we can turn a strength of diversity that God has given us that's still pretty unique in the world. Less than 10% of churches in the United States are multiracial. So our fellowship is still fairly unique in that. And we don't want to turn a strength into a weakness by ignoring it and not doing biblically what we're called to do, which is talk about it, work through it. Uh, much of the New Testament is working through these issues of race and culture and coming together. So if we understand what the gospel is about, we'll know that we need to talk about this. Revelation 5.9 gives a picture of God's people as persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and that means every culture. So what is culture? Culture is simply, it's a learned system of knowledge and behavior patterns shared by a certain group of people. It is the way of life that everybody holds to. It's what's normal. Culture is very helpful. It's not an evil thing. Now, sometimes we use that word and we talk about the culture when we really mean the secular world. But culture is simply the, it, it's the pronouns of human existence, right? A pronoun helps us shorten sentences so that we don't have to explain every word all the time. Culture is like that. It's the way we greet, the way we think, the way we presume. How should you act in public? How should you, you know, how close can you stand to someone? 
that's always an issue for me. As soon as I'm traveling and I get out of the United States, I'm like, oh, here we go. And people get into my American bubble of, you know, six feet around me. And uh, I mean, it bugs me, you know, I, I have to like reprogram my mind every time. It's like, why are you standing so close to me? I had one time I was in Africa, I think in Zimbabwe. And I, I went to this gate. I had some time before my flight and I sat down, there was about 200 seats and they were all empty. There was nobody in this area. And I sat down and then this Chinese woman comes in about 10 minutes later and she sits down in the seat next to me, next to me. And I'm thinking in my cultural mind, I'm like, what sort of maniac would sit down in the chair right next to me? Like, this is disturbing behavior. And I'm like going through all this in my mind, like, how long do I have to sit here before I get up and move? Does it appear rude? Can I go to the bathroom and come back and have another seat? Like, but in her culture, you're close with people and you want to be close and that's respectful. In my culture, it's like, you know, it's respectful. You sit over there. That's respectful. Okay. That's, that's how we're going to do this. So culture influences so much of what we do. Now, there are two aspects to that. One is above the surface, the external aspects of culture. These are the things that we see that are visible, that are shareable, um, food, clothing, music, arts, rituals, gestures, greetings, eye contact. When the world talks about multiculturalism, this is what it's talking about. You know, we'll share, uh, we'll share fashion, we'll share food, we'll you know, we'll, we'll go out for Chinese tonight. We'll, we'll do our hair this way. And, you know, all of these sorts of things. And these can even be a challenge, but <coughs> simply having some cultural exchanges where we have foods from around the world and we sing uh, Wade in the Water and La Montaña and Oceans and wow, aren't we multicultural and diverse? Those are good but those are above the surface. And the, I think one of the problems that we see out in the world is they think that's multiculturalism, job done, but it's not. There's a whole nother level. And this is the internal, it's the below the surface parts of culture. The things that you don't see, the expectations, the values, the attitudes, views, all of those things. It, it's where you get the saying like, you know, uh, you can take you can take the New York out of the boy, but or you can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy, right? Even you move my context, I'm still gonna be a Midwest white Western American dude. That's just the way I think. It's the values I have. Um, that's my natural set. These are the things that divide us deeply that we're not even aware of. And like so many other things, the invisible is more dangerous than the visible. And so as a body of Christ, these are the things that we have to start learning about each other and being uh, pliable in and humble in and learning different ways to do things. And that's what Paul calls us to. This is the biblical call. Here's the reality. You ready for this? We are not the first multiracial movement in the United States in a church. There are multiracial movements going back to the 17th century. And every single one of them have fallen apart 
usually after about 40 to 50 years. And I think the reason is, is because they didn't pay attention to Paul's way of thinking here. We got all hung up on, let's go make disciples of all nations, but that's God's part. Our task is what Paul here says to be all things to all people. He said, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What Paul is talking about here is culture. Now, he doesn't use that word, but that's what he's talking about. He's like, to the Jews, I become like the Jews. To this group, I become like this group. I learn their culture. I figure out what works. And you can, you can go through and see how Paul will speak differently in different places and communicate differently and operate differently. He operates differently when he's around Jews and when he's around Gentiles. He operates differently in Galatia than he does Thessalonica. He understands culture and he's humble. And he calls the church in Corinth to be the same. He's like, I do this for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is more important than my culture. The gospel is more important than my political beliefs. The gospel is more important than any of these other things. I'm not going to change the gospel, but I will change myself. I will become humble and pliable. Um, we're not going to talk about that one today. We're going to skip the HUP and go right in. The good news is, is that culture and ethnicity in the early church are one of the biggest topics in the New Testament. So we're not left blind here. It's not as though, oh man, you know, this was not a problem they faced in the early church. What do we do? It's all over the New Testament. That's why when people say like, why do we have to talk about this? Can't we, you know, we're bringing politics, we're bringing liberalism into the church. It's like, no, not at all. Um, have you read the New Testament? Because it's, it's everywhere. And keep in mind, one, one of the, smackdowns that I hear a, a lot is, well, why do we have to talk about, you know, racial issues, cultural issues? Isn't that just allowing liberalism in the church? There you go. End of conversation. No, be very clear. They stole it from Jesus. The world stole caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized, justice issues, you know, looking out for the oppressed, racial equality, that all came from Jesus. The world wasn't talking about stuff like that before Jesus. So that the world has kind of taken that stuff and stolen it. Uh, let's approach it with a kingdom perspective and not copy the solutions of the world. But make no mistake, this is Jesus stuff, not world stuff. Uh, but we have conflicts all over the place in the New Testament. Acts 6, the Hebraic Jews versus the Hellenic Jews. Acts 15, the Jews and Gentiles. And that tension is all throughout. The book of Acts, the Samaritans were, you know, and the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And uh, the whole book of Galatians is written because the, the Jews are exercising a cultural dominance over the Gentiles. And Paul addresses it. Then you have the mirror issue in Rome. So he lights, writes the letter to Romans because now the Gentiles are expressing cultural dominance over the Jews. Um, you have social status conflicts in Corinth and the culture around that. You have Ephesus, you have many other places where the New Testament is directly addressing these issues. In fact, about 30% of Paul's writings, I didn't misspeak there, about 30% of Paul's writings is him teaching the church how to bring their different cultures together and be one family. Paul wrote 2,032 verses. 
he mentions marriage in 68 verses, but he talks about the gathering of the nations and culture and how to come together and do this and be all things to all people, 637 verses by my count. But almost 10 times more than marriage. And yet, if we say, hey, we're going to have a weekend talking about race and culture, somebody will go, why do we have to talk about this? But if you say we're going to have a weekend about marriage, no one will say, are, should we be talking about marriage in the church? I mean, are we overstressing this? Would it, does it not sound crazy to have a diverse church of all these cultures and never teach on it biblically? Never teach us how to do it? As though, oh, well, bro, you know, the minute I became a Christian, uh, any prejudice or racism I had, it went away. And none of that is in the church. Really? How's that philosophy working out for your pride or your greed or your materialism? It takes a lifetime to work on these things. It doesn't just disappear. We have to work on these things. Um, three aspects of culture. There are some parts of our culture that will work against being a Christian. Um, Paul says, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Um, I'm sorry, I, you have to give me about two seconds. I just have to lean over and open my door because my dog has decided she wants to run through the house and she's gonna sit here and whine if I don't let her out. So give me two seconds. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. That's life in the COVID exile, right? You just have to deal with it. Um, uh, my wife, uh, my, my dog is very selfish and demanding. So uh, there it is. Um, but we don't conform to the patterns of this world. I, I've been in cultures, um, you know, in, in Africa where the father does not interact really with the children. That's, that's the woman's work to do. Well, that's not going to cut it when you come into Christ. That's not the biblical manner. Um, the hyper-individualism of the West. Honestly, we need to confront it more. It's not consistent with the biblical worldview. It's our culture. It's our cultural way of thinking. And that controls so much more than we believe. We've even crafted Christianity to kind of our individualist culture mindset. Uh, but that's conforming to the patterns of our world. And we need to reject a lot of that. Uh, number The second part is this being all things to all people. As we appreciate and embrace the other aspects of one, another, one another's culture to include them. If we don't do that, it's really easy to send the message that I want your presence, but not your participation. It's great to have diversity in your skin color around, but could you leave your culture out there because it makes me uncomfortable, okay? Um, and that's not what the body of Christ is supposed to be. And if, if anybody's ever said or thought, well, we don't have a culture in our church, let me just be blunt, you are deceived. Uh, you do have a culture. Every group has a culture. And if you don't talk about it, the dominant culture in society will dominate the church and put everybody else on unequal ground. And that's what Paul means when he says we got to become all things to all people. We equal out the ground here in the church. The third thing then is we transform as we reject some aspects of culture, as we embrace other cultures and ways of doing things we transform into this new kingdom way of life that's centered around Christ. But the idea of, no, we don't need to talk about culture. We just follow the Bible and have a Jesus culture here. You don't get there unintentionally. You have to do it intentionally. 
And we'll see in a few minutes, Paul says that when he's talking about being all things to all people. Now, it can be a little counterintuitive because it seems like, well, if we talk about these things, isn't it going to be divisive because we had come from such different places? Here's the thing. The division is already there when we come in with these different cultures. If we don't talk about them, it will stay. The way to destroy and bring down the dividing walls is to examine them, is to explore them, is to deal with them. Otherwise, they will remain. Now, I alluded to this a little bit, but let me talk about the dynamic of dominant and non-dominant cultures in a group. If you have um, a diverse group, you're going to have a dominant culture specifically. Um, it can be based on numbers. It can be based on uh, power. It can be based on economic. It can be based on a lot of things. In the United States, clearly, white Western culture is the dominant culture. That is the dominant culture in our family of churches, for the most part, is a white Western culture. And if you think, now, I don't think we have a white culture in the church, go to a black culture church and tell me if you don't see any differences. Um, uh, uh, of course, there are differences. In fact, go to an all-white church and an all-black church and then tell me which one our church looks more like. Um, now, it'll be, you know, we've grown some. We're not exactly one or the other, but we tend to be white Western culture. I'm not saying that as though that's wrong or evil or shame on us or we're in sin, but I'm saying that as we've got to recognize where we're at so we can move where the Bible wants us to move and not stay where we're not supposed to be. So here's some dynamics of dominant and non-dominant cultures. Dominant cultures, and this is across the board, tend to be unaware of their own culture. Oh, we don't have a culture. We just, uh, they have cultures. Cultures is what other people have, right? And so the dominant culture, even if they're trying to be inclusive, can, without realizing it, send the idea that we're still the default culture. So you say, you know what, we need to invite more people to the table. Well, when did it get to be your table? You know, like, well, why, why is that the case? Um, or, hey, we're going to have a, a Latino party tonight. Well, what does that say? I appreciate the effort, but it's also communicating that the white culture is the default culture. Because I've yet to hear anybody say, hey, we're going to have a white Western marriage dance tonight, right? You, you wouldn't do that. Um, you know, and so we've, like in Minnesota, we've tried to, coronavirus has kind of offlined a lot of this, but we're trying this year to work on that and just have uh, parties with a cultural assumption. We're like, hey, the marriage dance this month is going to be a white party. And a lot of folks were like, what's a white party? But you know, and other folks were like, oh, I know exactly what a, what a white party is. If you don't know what a white party is, ask, ask someone um, that's uh, probably ask an African-American and they'll be able to explain to you what a white party is. Um, has nothing to do with skin color, by the way. Um, so dominant cultures are unaware of their own culture. Non-dominant groups are typically very aware of their own culture and their own identity, as well as the dominant groups, because they have to, to be able to survive. You have to be able to do what's called code switching. I know how to operate in the dominant culture. I know how to go back into my own. Uh, my wife can do this like a master. I, I hear her on phone calls and she'll be like, oh yeah, that would be great. I'll love you. Okay, have a good day. 
and then her mom or something will call and she'll be like, oh yeah, what's up? Oh, we've been to go with Mama Nams and you know all this stuff, and it's like, whoa, she'll just switch back and forth. Um, she's she's very comfortable doing it. So the non-dominant group is more adept at adopting to the dominant group's norms and can adapt. Because the dominant group is not so good at that, it's harder. It's more easy to feel uncomfortable. It's more easy to feel nervous about it. Uh, you know, you won't see anybody get nervous like, oh, I went to church and there were six white women in a circle talking. Nobody thinks about that. But let six women of color get in a circle together and talk. And somebody's like, you know, is that okay? I mean, are they being exclusionary? Or, you know, we're suddenly, because we're just not as comfortable with non-dominant cultures. And I'm not mocking anyone at all. I'm just saying these are the things that we struggle with. Uh, another element is dominant groups. And, and I've, I've literally been on both sides of this, by the way. Um, let me describe this first, and then I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, dominant groups tend to ascribe the behavior of other cultural groups as a unit. So if one person from another cultural group does something, you go, well, what's wrong with that group? Why is that group like that? As though that one person is the face of that whole group. But when somebody from their group does something aberrant, they go, oh, what a poor, sick individual. And it's human nature because you know the values and you know the norms of your group. And when somebody breaks it, you go, that's not what should be done. But when somebody from another group does something, you just go, there's something wrong with that whole group. That's the way the whole group is. And we stereotype it. Um, I've grown up my whole life surrounded by the dominant culture. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin in a small town. Everybody kind of was like me, acted like me, thought like me in many respects. And then all of a sudden, you know, over the years, I've had my wife. Uh, you know, we've been together 25 years. We have our sons. And then we've had times where uh, just recently even, her mom, brother, nephew, um, we're all living here. Right now, we have four family members that are living with us. And suddenly, I'm in the house, and I'm the only person completely purely from my cultural background. And I'm now the non-dominant group. And I'm walking around feeling very disaffected because they're now the dominant culture in the household. And so they're unaware of, like, what they're doing. You know, they'll all just be doing things, and it's normal. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so, for example, I, I made supper one night, and because of my wife's job and stuff, I wind up cooking a lot. So I made it, and I called everybody and said, hey, supper's ready. And this part of her family had just moved in with us. Like, supper's ready, and no one came. And I'm like, I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, what's going on? It's supper time. That's sacred. Like, let's go. And she, my wife was like, well, they're not hungry. I'm like, but it's supper time. It doesn't matter if you're hungry or not. You come, and I'm like, what is going on? And she's like, well, we don't do it that way. You just put food on the counter, and everybody comes through and eats and sits down and hangs out. They still get time together, but they don't do it in the same way. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And we've had cookouts like that. You know, I'm like, food's ready, and people are – they're still over-talking. I'm like, no, 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 did you hear me? And so after a while, here's what happens, though. I start to – when they don't pay attention to that, and they just think, what? We're not being – 
disrespectful to anybody. We're not ignoring anybody. We're just doing what's normal. But it started to lead to a growing discontent on my part. I'm not welcome here. They don't even need me. They just do it their own way. You know what? I'll go be around some folks who understand me and how things should operate. And it's very easy to fall into that. Meanwhile, the dominant group grows increasingly out of touch. We're family. This is great. We're multicultural. But we're not. And it's going to take work. Unchecked cultural predominance or indifference to these things will start to quack like the duck of prejudice in the eyes of others. It'll just start to look like you want me here, but not my culture, or I have to act like you to fit in here. We want to create an environment where everyone feels welcome and no one feels at home. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you're at home, everything goes your way. But in the body of Christ, we want everyone to feel included and welcome, but you're going to feel uncomfortable. If, you've if you go to church and have never felt culturally uncomfortable, then there's a problem. And it probably means either your church is shallow or you're part of the culturally dominant group and have never even thought about these issues. Everyone in a diverse church should have times where we feel culturally uncomfortable. And it is harder. There will be a pull. This is what God has called us to. There will be a pull over time, especially for the non-dominant group, to say, you know what? It's easier to just go back and be with my own people. It's more comfortable. They get me. And I urge you not to do that because that's not what God has called us to. Paul says, when we are this diverse family, it demonstrates the wisdom of God. But it's way too easy for me as the dominant group person to not listen to these issues, to not be willing to, uh, you know, challenge myself and get out of my own comfort zone and then tell you that you should continue to be committed to this. We all have to do an equal amount of work or it will get tiring. And that's where I do think there will be times, and we've got to be careful with this and use discernment and be wise and not, um, you know, go too far. But there will be times where I think it can be appropriate uh, for a church to encourage times where non-dominant group members can get together without stress. Uh, my wife occasionally hosts what she calls a sister's breakfast, and she invites uh, some of the, the black sisters in the church, not as a way to exclude or to cut off anybody else, but to say, we have a particular challenge here. Let's, let's let our hair down. Let's be comfortable. And as black women talk about how we can remain committed to this multicultural, multiracial project that we're a part of. But there's, there, you know, when I'm in Africa, I love being in Africa. I love the culture over there. But every now and then, We'll get with some other Americans and be like, let's just hang out tonight. Can we just hang out and eat our food on paper plates and have some mashed potatoes and not have to explain everything we're doing? Because here's the thing. Sociologists will tell you that, that being around people of another culture is physically and mentally tiring. If you've ever come back from being around church or people and just felt like, oh, I'm so tired. You're not crazy. 
that's part of what God has called us to. That's the challenge. Because we tend to view our own culture as better. And so being around people of other cultures is more challenging. But we want to become not assimilation where, hey, you got to become just like us and to be part of the group. you got to act culturally this way. We want to be accommodation where everybody can express their culture and it's on equal ground. We can clash over all sorts of things. This is just a brief sample of some of the things in the church that we can have huge cultural differences about. Let me give one example uh, and how this can play out. Some cultures are monochronic. Now, these cultures tend to be rooted in colder climate areas um, because in a colder climate, you have to plant crops on time. If you don't, you die. If you don't take your crops up at the right time, you die. And, you know, and so the cultures tend to become very time oriented, very rigid in that sense. You focus on one activity, you get it done. There's a high value on order. There's a place for everything. I, I don't want you to interrupt my schedule or change plans. Um, and let's just keep things moving. If you've heard sayings like time is money and, you know, time is valuable and don't waste my time. These are monochronic sayings. Okay. And you can have adapted monochronism. I've, I've met people who didn't grow up in a monochronic culture, but went into the military where you sure as heck will have monochronic, uh, you know, place time. I'm extremely monochronic. Then you have cultures that are polychronic. Um, time is cyclical. These tend to be rooted in the cultures that come from warmer weather climates. It's easy to plant crops. You can plant them whenever, you can take them whenever, it's not a big deal. And so rather than time becoming king, relationship becomes king. You have more time to have relationships. You can do multiple things. You can change the schedule, no problem. You can interrupt me, not a big deal. So my wife and I get married and I tell her, by the way, we have a Christmas Eve party every year. So every year, my parents sent an invitation to our big family Christmas Eve party. She's like, your parents send you an invitation to your party? I'm like, yeah, how else would we know to come? I mean, yeah. And so our Christmas Eve parties, they start at four o'clock. And we have, you know, hang out, fellowship time, catch up with everybody, 4.30 hors d'oeuvres are served at five o'clock, kids activities start at 5.30. The uh, night before Christmas is read at six o'clock is gift exchange and we're done by 6.30 and everybody's on their way home. End of deal. And my wife would come away and be like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. It's like, what are you talking about? That's, that's how people do it. Then Thanksgiving comes around and she says, we're gonna go to my mama's house for Thanksgiving for, for lunch. Okay, great. We show up at like 11, 11.30. Ain't nobody even there. I'm like, I thought you said this was lunch. By one o'clock, people are starting to show up and maybe start cooking by 1.30. At three o'clock, I'm looking in the kitchen like, are we going to eat? She's like, yeah, we're in here cooking. I'm like, it's, this is a late lunch. We're already into the third football game of the day. And, you know, by five o'clock, we still haven't eaten. And I'm going in there like, when are we leaving? 
when are we done? And now, see, now, oh, danger. Because now she's like, do you not like my family? I would like them a lot more if they would serve some food. You know, like, what are, and she's in there, oh, well, we in here, you know, my grandma's putting her foot in it right now. I'm like, wait, what? Like, I don't want food that somebody's foot is, but what are you talking about? And it'd be like seven o'clock before we eat. So this was lunch. You know, at six o'clock, I'm like, why aren't we eating yet? Oh, well, Juicy just running up to the store to get some cornbread. Nobody thought of this until six o'clock. And so one year I went to her and I said, you know, um, by the way, I think I can help you guys be a little more efficient in the kitchen and get food out on time. And my wife looked at me and said, what makes you think we're trying to be efficient? It's about the time together, the fellowship, the process. I was like, yeah, but you, I mean, what time is, what time is it done then? That's not the way those cultures think. And so now you take that and you put that together as a church. Well, sister, you were 15 minutes late for our time together. That's rude. You don't respect my time. And what I, the message culturally I just sent is we are not family. This is a business relationship. That's the underlying cultural message I've sent. So when we're not aware of these things, we can cause problems. See, culture can be about collaboration, or we can view it as something that brings us comfort. If we want to hold on to my culture brings me comfort, we're going to have trouble in the body of Christ. Because Paul calls us to be all things to all people. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but people can communicate differently because of their cultural background. Oftentimes, sociologists say this actually has more to do with socioeconomic upbringing, that people from generational poverty tend to be uh, what's called a spiral communicator. Uh, you kind of start in one place and your stories go around and around, and they don't necessarily start at the beginning. And, it's meant to be more interactive, where linear communicators, you start with point A, point B, point C, and then the end of the story, and it makes sense. And my wife is a spiral communicator, and she would start talking, I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying right now. Just get to the point, right? And so we can have trouble communicating with each other because of cultural things. And we just say, that person, and I've literally seen people go, you know what? That person is not a good speaker. Don't let them get on stage because they're a spiral communicator and I only understand linear communication. And so we don't know how to bridge this gap. Um, I'll just put this up. We're not gonna have time to talk about this, but there's a, a, a lot of different cultural differences between you know, personality, food, clothing, time, uh, humor, um, conversation. That was really tough for me to fit into my wife's family because all their humor and conversation seems to be focused on people and what used to happen and what Mr. Smitty did back in the day and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, Mr. Smitty, how can I laugh at this stuff? And when my family gets together, we talk about ideas and concepts and things going on in the world and we debate things. And my wife would be like, who wants to talk about all that? Like, that's boring. And so we had trouble in, in that area. Here's the thing. Let me bring this session, start to bring it to a point here. Right after Paul says, I become all things to all people, he starts talking about athletes training. And he says, I go into strict training. This is going to be work. This does not come naturally. It's not easy. It would be easier for me to go be in a church of people that looked like me and thought like me. 
but he says, I don't want to waste my time and be disqualified. I'm going to put in the work. If God has put me in a diverse community, and I believe he has, then I'm going to work at this. And it takes effort. We want to be Revelation 5 focused, which means on who God is making us into a diverse family rather than what our preferences are in the moment. We have to focus on who we will be rather than who we are. Make more copies. Let me give some uh, lists here at the end. A cross-cultural church will. It will value the diversity of other people. It will want to include this. It will understand that this doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take a long time. And dominant culture people have to be willing to work and adapt. And non-dominant people have to be patient but persistent. And here's the thing. Let me just say this. If I was growing up, I don't have a little brother, but let's say I did. And when he was little, my parents always bought pizza and gave me seven pieces and gave my little brother one. And then down the road, they suddenly said, you know what, your brother's getting bigger. We want to be a little more fair. We're going to give you five pieces and give him three. If all I have ever experienced is seven pieces, five feels like oppression. When really, it's a step toward equality. So culturally speaking, keep in mind, as if you're in the dominant group, if all you've ever known is advantage, move towards equality will feel like oppression. And we have to avoid that temptation to feel like, why are we having, why are we being picked on? Why are we having to change? Why are we having to, and see it for what it actually is. So a church will value diversity. It will self-assess culturally. It will become aware of how cultural differences influence interactions. It'll incorporate these understandings into the life of the church and be willing to continue to modify community life. Let me talk about individuals here. Number one, these are some practicals. Give the benefit of the doubt. If somebody does something and it seems odd to you, assume that what they're doing is respectful in their culture. Okay. Um, I, I remember that with my mother-in-law. She lived with us for a while and I would see her in the morning and I wouldn't say anything to her. And she felt like that was really, really rude. Like it was on me as the host to say, oh, good morning. But in the house I grew up in, we just don't greet each other in the morning. It's like, man, we're together all the time. You just, why would I greet you? You were here last night. But to her, that was rude. And so she thought I didn't like her. Um, and so she learned graciously to give the benefit of the doubt. I learned to start saying good morning when I saw her in the morning. Number two, look for what the action means in the other person's culture. This is interpretation. Rather than interpreting your actions by my culture, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say, I bet that was respectful in their culture. Number three, allow each other to make mistakes. Number four, this is all about direction, four and five. I want to be sensitive towards you and try to not be so sensitive in my direction. And when we're all doing that, it can work. Number six, this is a crucial question. Ask someone, ask what someone meant by their actions. We have to be a church that's okay saying, hey, can I ask what you meant by that? Because that felt off to me. That felt rude. And then we don't get defensive. We don't get 
weird about it. Say, oh, you know what? That's a question that's going to come in a diverse church. In fact, let, let me fill you in on something. If you're having cultural uncomfortability and conflict in your church, that means you're doing something right. It's not a sign that something's wrong. We will have these issues, and we'll have to work past them. That's why there's, in fact, the Bible promises it. Think of how many passages in the New Testament say, be patient with one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. Why? Because we're going to mess up and hurt one another. It's a promise. It's an implied promise. Plan on it. So the next time someone, someone in the church hurts you or is insensitive culturally or something, rather than getting offended, get down on your knees and praise God for fulfilled prophecy because the New Testament said this was going to happen. We're going to have to work through these things. Number seven, don't assume that your point of view is correct or normal. It's a way, not the way. And you'd be surprised how much of what we do is culturally conditioned. So be open. Be proactive. Don't wait for problems to come up. Start dealing with it now. Number nine, get out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to to be all things to all people. If you don't want to get out of your comfort zone, you pick the wrong religion. You pick the wrong person to follow. And number 10, relax. The world is in nasty division over these things. If we are respectful and humble and empathetic and willing to change and listen and see things from the perspective of someone else and be more concerned about the perspective of someone else than our own interpretation or feelings, you know, I wish there was a verse in the Bible that said, put the interests of one another ahead of your own. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been fantastic if someone had thought to write that? Um, I, I hope you're all catching the sarcasm there because that's uh, Philippians 2, right? Um, let me just remind you at the end, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Um, we're going to go ahead and take a break. I'll leave it up to This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcasts.